When I was my oldest son's age, there was an iconic movie that was released um, that has kind of become a cult classic through the years. It was called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And your laughter gives you a way that you uh, have either seen it or heard of it or know of it in some uh, form or another. And essentially what takes place in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is that these two kind of flaky high school students um, realize that they are way behind in their uh, preparation for a school history project uh, that, that, that must be presented to the class, and they uh, stumble onto time travel, an ability to, to go back in time. And so what they do is they travel to all of these various points in history, and they literally kidnap the iconic figures uh, that represented that, that, that time period, brought them back into the present day, and actually used the person uh, that they were they were presenting to give the presentation at the end. And of course, you know, they get an A on the thing because how can you go wrong when you actually bring the historical figure uh, to, to give the presentation and all. And, and the reason why I start our Bible study in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, with an illustration from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is because that is, in a sense, exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing uh, in this chapter that's before us right now. Uh, I've shared with you as we've moved through this Bible study that the writer is uh, making a case for Christ. His objective is to uh, bring an exhortation to first century Jewish Christians who are being tempted to forsake salvation by faith in Christ alone to go back to salvation through adherence to the Mosaic law, or at very least a blending of the two things. You know, we'll keep Christ, but we'll, for insurance purposes, uh, we'll continue in the things of the law and the old covenant. And, and they were drawing back from the boldness and the separation that God had called them to in placing them in Jesus Christ. And so the author is exhorting them and challenging them and saying, listen, you're on dangerous ground anytime that you try to add anything to Christ or substitute anything to Christ in terms of your salvation. And so he takes 10 chapters and he holds Jesus Christ in contrast to everything that was in the Old Covenant and shows that Jesus is the superior and that Jesus is the fulfillment. And he brings his case at the end of chapter 10 to the, to the point, the summit, that it is salvation by faith alone in Jesus that saves. And that salvation by faith is superior to any other form of salvation or any other attempt at salvation that can be made. That faith is the way. It is grace through faith by which we are saved. And in closing that part of his argument at the end of chapter 10, he then begins to call to the witness stand in the court, as it were, the historical figures that had walked with God in Old Testament time to testify from their own experience how that it was by faith that they were saved. That even though they were Old Testament figures, it wasn't through the law or through the Old Covenant or through the disposition of those times, but rather it was through faith in a Savior 
that they were saved. And so he begins calling these witnesses one by one, 12 witnesses as we go through the chapter. Now we looked at the first five in our study last time. We looked at Abel, who testifies of a righteousness that comes by faith in the blood of a lamb. And he gives that testimony to us in the Old Testament. He then calls Noah to the stand. And Noah gives to us the testimony of, or I'm sorry, Enoch gives to us a testimony of a faith that pleases God by living and walking in a relationship with him by faith. He then calls Noah to the stand who testifies to us of a faith to live in the full readiness for his coming and for coming judgment. He testifies of how Noah did that by faith. And then he calls Abraham and Sarah to the witness stand who testify of a faith, living by faith, and believing God in spite of circumstances that would declare otherwise, and also of a faith that obtains promises, and also of a faith in God that is sustained by a hunger for what is yet to come. And so he, he's calling these witnesses to the witness stand to testify. Now, it's important to understand that he's very calculated in who it is that he's using as his witnesses. And he's also calculated in the very aspect of the thing that he's having them testify concerning. Now, when he calls someone like David to the witness stand or Abraham to the witness stand, I mean, he could literally go on for days giving examples of things that were were the evidence of faith within the lives of these people. But he doesn't do that. He chooses one or two or three very small things for each of these witnesses to testify of. And he does that on purpose because Each of those things speak to the circumstances that the Hebrew Christians are facing and what they need to hear. And so he's not just giving them a redundant spewing forth of faith facts, but rather there's a calculated calling forth of individual things that will resonate with the Hebrews who are tempted to turn away from Christ. And the message of these witnesses not only supports the case that Jesus is the only way to the Hebrews then, but rather it also speaks to us today concerning the place of faith and our faith in Christ concerning these things. And so what we resume is in verse 20 with the sixth witness that he calls to the witness stand, and that is uh, Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And Isaac testifies to us tonight of a faith that stands resolute on what it professes. Notice what he says concerning Isaac. It's just one verse in verse 20. He says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. And that's it. Just one sentence that he, he, he calls Isaac to the witness stand and he just has him testify very briefly about the blessing of his two twin sons, Jacob and Esau, concerning things to come. Now, again, Isaac was the promised son of Abraham. Abraham waited a long time for Isaac to be born. He was the son of promise. And he came and he became the heir of the promises that were given to Abraham concerning the nation that would be birthed and the the savior and the salvation that would come through that nation that would that would be transferred upon Isaac 
And in the process of time, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. And, and these boys grew up. They lived their life. You read their account and their testimony. And the event that the author of Hebrews calls upon Isaac to testify of is something that happened way later in Isaac's life and in Isaac's path. And you could almost think, well, is that all he could think of? I mean, is that all there was in Isaac's life to speak of faith? Why in the world does he, does he um, use this instance of, of um, Isaac blessing Jacob and Esau as his testimony for these people. Why is that? Uh, I think it's important. It's also interesting, um, not just the choice that he made, but it's also interesting to realize that when Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, that he was actually deceived at the moment that he was doing it. If you remember the story, the intention of Isaac was to lay the blessing upon Esau who was technically the older son. He would get the blessing because he was the older son. So Rebekah, wanting Jacob to obtain that blessing, deceives Isaac, who is now blind at this point, and sends Jacob in wearing fur skin so that he'll feel like Esau and and to talk with kind of a, you know, maybe a more rough voice so so that Isaac will think that it's Esau. And, and, and Isaac says, why do I hear Jacob's voice but feel Esau's skin? And Jacob said, because it's, I don't know, it's me. You know, and, 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 and he deceives his father Isaac, and Isaac confers the blessing upon Jacob. Well, just a few moments after he finishes blessing Jacob and eating the food, Esau comes in with the food that he had prepared for Isaac. And Esau says, okay, father, lay on me the blessing. And Isaac says, well, what are you talking about? And he says, well, no, no, it's me. I'm here. You said you were going to bless me. And he says, no, no, I've already blessed your brother. And he will be blessed. I only have one blessing to give. And Esau began to weep and cry and and lament and howl because he missed out on the blessing that he was hoping to receive from his father. And then Isaac utters this kind of half-blessing that he has left in him upon Esau, and and, and then the, the narrative kind of goes on, and the things come to pass exactly in the way uh, that Isaac had spoken them forth to be. And so the faith that the author of Hebrews is highlighting for us in the testimony of Isaac is that it, he, he declared in faith what would happen to these two boys. And then it happened exactly according as he had spoken uh, to them. And that's the testimony that he wants them to give, that he made a profession of faith and that that profession of faith stood and played out in reality, in real life, according as he had spoken it forth in faith. And so the testimony of Isaac is that a profession of faith is a powerful thing in the life of a child of God. Now, I want to go on the record to say that I do not believe in the accidental proclamation of events. You know, you'll hear some people that say, well, you need to be very careful what you say as a Christian uh, because you have power in your words with God and you can actually speak things into existence that aren't there because uh, God will hear and, and somehow you have power in what you say and that's going to happen. And so, you know, I, I said to my wife, you know, before the service, I say, I'm starting to feel a scratchiness in my throat. And she were to turn to me and say, don't say that. That's a negative confession. Don't do that. 
You're going to speak that into reality, you know, or something. Or I say concerning my kids, and I say, man, he is crazy. He's out of his mind. And one of the five is. <laughs> and, and, and they say, don't, well, you're going to speak that into his life. I don't believe that. I believe that God has a will, and that God has a plan, and that God doesn't bow to what I say, and his will is all, all of a sudden changed, transformed, and conformed into what I speak as a child of God. I think that's false teaching. You'll hear people quote a verse from Isaiah somewhere in the 40s where the Bible says that, that God says by the Spirit, He says, concerning the works of my hands, command ye me. Concerning the works of my hands, command ye me. And they'll say, see, God says that we're to command Him concerning the works of His hands. No, 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 that's not what that says. You got the punctuation wrong. God is saying, concerning the works of my hands... Command ye me? That's what he's saying. It's a question, not a statement. Are you going to command me concerning the works of my hands? I'm the sovereign God who sees the end from the beginning, who knows all things and knows the hearts of all men. And you're going to command me about the things that I'm, I'm doing in your life? I don't believe that we accidentally speak things into existence with our careless words. However... I do believe that there is power in our words, nevertheless. And when there is a proclamation of faith in something that God has revealed or spoken, that God honors that proclamation of faith. And that's what he is speaking forth concerning Isaac. Isaac spoke in faith concerning things to come that he knew were revealed by the Spirit of God, and those things came to pass in the lives of his sons. There is power in the tongue. The power of life and death is in the tongue. And there is power in profession. Now, why is it important for the Hebrews to hear this testimony from Isaac himself? Here's why. Because the Hebrew Christians to whom the author is writing had made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And they were on the verge of turning away from that profession because things weren't happening for them the way that they had hoped. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where the way of salvation is laid out so clear by the Apostle Paul, he says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that is that Jesus is the Lord of your life, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the tongue confession is made unto salvation. And so when a person comes to faith in Christ, they are making a profession with their mouth from their heart that their life now belongs to the Lord Jesus because of what he did for them upon the cross. My sin laid upon him, his righteousness laid upon me. I am giving you my life. And God honors that profession of faith because it is spoken in his word that that is the way of salvation. And when a person makes that profession and that proclamation, God is committed to saving that person because he says that's the way. Of course, it's accompanied by repentance in the heart that brings a person to that true confession. But God honors that profession. I have seen that so many times. I'm amazed to watch how God comes to collect on the things that have been committed to him. People say, you know, um, the Billy Graham organization put out a survey and, you know, of a hundred people that come forward in a crusade, only ten of them are, are, are in a church a year later. Yeah, I believe there's probably truth in that statistic. But what I would wonder 
is how many of those 100 people are in a church 10 years later? I bet you the number's a lot higher, not a lot less. Because I've seen people that are moved by God in a particular instance, and they respond and they give their life to him. But then they, like a Jacob or a Samson or, you know, someone who, who, who doesn't fully, you know, understand or God doesn't have a full hold on their life, they, they waver for a while. But it's amazing to watch how God will come to collect on the thing that's been committed to them. We see that in the lives of our youth, don't we? How many of us as parents have seen our kids make a sincere profession of faith? And then they get lost in their teenage years or at a, at a particular portion of their life. They're off. But then something happens where God then comes to collect on the thing that was then committed to him at one point in time. And so he is faithful to honor that profession that is made. And the Hebrew Christians need to hear it as they were on the verge of abandoning that profession. The next witness, the seventh witness that he calls to the witness stand is uh, the son of Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob testifies to us concerning a faith that keeps God first in its life and depends completely upon him. Notice what he says in verse 21 concerning Jacob. He says, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Now again, Jacob was one of the two twin sons of Isaac. And Jacob's great claim to fame in the history of God is that he was the father of what would become the patriarchs. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. It was changed from heel catcher, Yaakov, to Israel, which means governed by God. And so he became the great patriarch and his 12 sons became the heads of the 12 tribes that would make up the nation of Israel. So that's who Jacob is. Now, the, the, the event or the actions that he's called to testify concerning are two. Number one is the blessing of Joseph's sons. That's the first action that, that he's called to testify concerning. And then the second action is the fact that he worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. So let's take the first one, first of all. The story is that way late in Jacob's life, he's well into his 170s at this point. And the time has come that he's about to die. His eyes are dim. His uh, life has been long. He's living in Egypt. All has played out with his sons and with Joseph and with the children of Israel now in Egypt. All that saga has already taken place. And Jacob calls for Joseph and his two sons during his last days, his final hours. And he says, bring your two sons to me. And so Joseph brings Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons, to Jacob. And Joseph very carefully puts Manasseh on Jacob's right and Ephraim on Jacob's left. So that Jacob's right hand, which is the superior blessing, will go to Manasseh and the inferior will go to Ephraim, who is the second born. But when the two sons are standing in front of Jacob, Jacob crosses his hands and he puts his right hand on Ephraim and he puts his left hand on Manasseh. And, and Joseph rebukes him. And he says, no, 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 father, you've got it wrong. And Jacob said, no, son, you've got it wrong. I've got it right. And it's going to be the way it is. And so Jacob speaks to his son concerning 
Joseph's sons, and then he lays this blessing upon them. Now, the, the question is, what in the world of all the things that you can say concerning Jacob? I mean, you saw the ladder ascending and descending. He lived for 20 years. He saw the prosperity of his family. He saw the 12 sons born. He came back. He wrestled with God. I mean, he did all these things. Why in the world does this attorney, that is the author of Hebrews, ask him about the blessing of his two sons? What does that have to do with anything? Here's what it has to do with the Hebrews and why it's here and why it's amazing that this is set forth before us. Notice the players in this drama. Number one is you have a father. You have Jacob. Number two is you have a son. A son, that is Joseph. And it just so happens, as things can just so happen, right, in the economy of God, it just so happens that Joseph is a picture of Jesus. He was the savior of the known world in his day. And so Jacob, the father, you have the son, Joseph, who is a picture or a type of Christ. And then you have two sons of Joseph, who essentially, in the context of the story, are nobodies. They are nobodies. And what you have now is you have Jacob saying to Joseph, listen, these two sons of yours are going to take your place. Instead of there being a tribe of Joseph, there's going to be two tribes for you. There's going to be a tribe of Ephraim and a tribe of Manasseh. And we won't have a tribe of Joseph. So you have a father who, who wills it that his son gives up his position for the sake of two people that aren't entitled to a position at all. The two sons of Ephraim. You have two people that have no claim and no right to a position among the patriarchs, obtaining a position in place of the son because it was the will of the father. Do you see the picture? The two sons took the place of the son. The two sons of Joseph took the place of the son of Jacob. It's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of what God has done for you and me. Who are we? We're nobodies. We deserve nothing. We have no right to claim position in his kingdom at all whatsoever. Not even as citizens, as paupers, as beggars, as animals, nothing at all. And what God has done is that he has placed us in the position of his son who traded places with us so that we would be kings and priests in his kingdom. And why did he do it? Because he willed it. Because he wanted to. That's why. And so the writer of Hebrews brings this event before the Hebrews and he says, listen, you who are on the verge of forsaking Christ to go your own way, understand what you've been given. Understand the position that you hold. Understand the privilege that's been extended to you in spite of you. And realize and understand what it is that you're going to walk away from. You have been blessed. Don't walk away from that blessing. By faith, you stand. By faith, Jacob blessed the two sons of Joseph. And then the second event concerning Jacob, it says, and he worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Why does he bring that up? Jacob testifies with his own life, at the end of his life, that few and evil were his days. Jacob didn't have it easy. Like, well, it's not that any of them had it easy. But some of them definitely had it better than others. And Jacob had a hard life. 
I mean, he brought a lot of that hardship on himself, but nevertheless, that hardship was there. Jacob testified with his own mouth at one point that everything that was happening was happening against him. That all these things are against me, Jacob said. And he had a very pessimistic attitude because of the things that were taking place within his life. He was standing before the Pharaoh later on in his life, at the end of his life, and he said, my days have been difficult. Few and evil have been my days, the days of my pilgrimage upon the earth. And now he stands as a blind man at the end of his life, looking back over the hardship of it all, and it says that he worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. And you say, what does that have to do with faith and why is it important to the Hebrews? Because Jacob persevered in his relationship with God and he continued to honor and worship God in spite of the fact that he had difficult circumstances that surrounded his life on this earth. It is the tendency of most people, isn't it? When things don't go the way that we hope, or when things go turn sideways of what we would expect, that we kind of take a backseat to the things of God. We may still honor him with our lips, but our heart grows cold and grows distant. But Jacob, his staff represented his dependence upon God from when he wrestled with Jesus and the, the hip was dislocated. And he worshipped leaning on the top of his staff, meaning that even though things didn't go the way that he had hoped, yet he was going to remain faithful in his profession of faith in our Lord. And it's a testimony to the Hebrews who because of persecution and because of difficulty and because of disillusionment were looking to turn away from God to go their own way. And so the testimony of Jacob before us is a faith that keeps God first, that continues to live in dependence upon him even in spite of difficult circumstances. The eighth witness that's called to the witness stand is in verse 22, and it's Joseph, the son of Jacob. And Joseph testifies to us concerning a faith that believes that better things await the people of God. Joseph, again, he represents the youngest, the second youngest son of Jacob. And he is now the fourth generation. You have Abraham, then you have Isaac, then you have Jacob, and then you have Joseph. So he is now the fourth generation in this whole thing. And Joseph has in the scriptures probably one of the most remarkable and incredible testimonies that have ever, ever been been recounted or lived or laid down for, for someone to read. When you read the story of what God did with this young man Joseph, the dreams that he had when he was 17, how he was sold then as a slave, how he worked his way up to, to be the leader in the house, and then he was lied uh, against and accused of rape and then thrown into a prison and yet God was with him and he worked his way up into the prison and he became the you know the, the the overseer of the entire administration of Pharaoh's prison systems there in Egypt and then the the butcher and the baker have a dream and Joseph interprets the dream and he's left for two years and then the Pharaoh has a dream and he's told this man can interpret and Joseph is brought before the Pharaoh he interprets the dream accompanied with a plan that would bring salvation to the entire nation of Egypt and the known world of the day. He's exalted to the second in command, the prime minister of the most powerful kingdom in the world, and then he becomes the most spiritually respected man in the world. 
He sees his brothers bow before him in the fulfillment of his dreams. The Bible tells us that he teaches the senators of Pharaoh wisdom, that they came to him when they needed counsel and advice. And he lived the highest life of probably anyone that has ever lived, ever. And of all of that, the writer of Hebrews says, Joseph, thank you for coming in today. Could you tell us, please, what you said to the children of Israel concerning your bones? Notice what it says concerning Joseph. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. That's it. Story's over. And Joseph's like, you brought me here for that? You know, of all the things that I, that I could tell you here of God and his faithfulness and what he's done, you want to talk about my bones and, and what I said concerning my bones? What gives in all of this? No mention of the dreams, no mention of the plan, no mention of anything. Why the bone? Here's why. Because the bones of Joseph, the bones of any person, represent their resting place. It represents where we are buried in terms of the things of this world. And in contrast to Jacob, okay, when you contrast Joseph with his father Jacob, Joseph lived a pretty good life. I think most of us here, if we had the opportunity before any of our days are lived at all, and we could choose our own destiny, and, and, and I could choose, okay, what I'm, or Joseph's. You know, I think every one of us here would choose Joseph's. <laughs> you know, I mean, he just, he lived a great life. God did incredible things with him. And, and you would think that Joseph, in all that he accomplished and all that he did, that he would be pretty proud and pretty happy with the existence of his life. I mean, if you were the prime minister of the most powerful kingdom of the world, and you had the resume that Joseph had, would you, and be honest, would you, be really, 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 really looking forward to going to heaven? I mean, honestly. I mean, we all say, yeah, you know, of course. And we know that's going to be better in the whole thing. But Joseph had it so good that you would think that he was like, you know, I could be there. I could be here. You know, it's all good. I'm, I'm, I'm living the dream here in the things of this earth. But here's the testimony that Joseph's mentioning of his bones. By the way, what he said concerning his bones was, don't leave them here. Don't leave them here. When you guys leave Egypt, take my bones with you. I do not want my legacy. I do not want my memory. I don't want me, any part of me, being left eternally attached to what this is and what this represents. And in that, Joseph's words concerning his bones become the most powerful and the deepest thing concerning his faith that can be testified in all of his life, in all of his existence. Because what he was essentially saying by saying, don't leave my bones here, is he was saying, none of this matters to me. None of it. What God's done with me, I'm, I'm sure he was appreciative of it. The, the position that I hold, the wealth that I have, the legacy that I have, that's all been great, but it's all his. It's all been him. None of it's been me, and I leave all of it behind. I renounce every bit of it. I renounce all of it for the sake of being in his kingdom. I would rather have a burying place in Canaan amongst God's people than to be enshrined forever in the museums of Egypt 
for the fame of what I did here. Take my bones out. This means nothing to me. That was the testimony of Joseph's life at the end of it. He knew that what he was a part of as a Christian was way bigger than what he was a part of in Egypt. And he knew that one day everything in Egypt is going to be left behind and he didn't want to be be there uh, after that, not even if it meant just his bones were being there. What this reveals to us about Joseph is that what drove him every day was his relationship with Christ. He was not driven by what he got to do or the blessing that, that his life was. He was driven by Christ. That's what moved him every day of his life. And so he testifies before us today that there is a promised land coming and there's a burying place, or rather a burying place there is of greater worth than to be enshrined in the memory of this world. And that was important for the Hebrews to hear because they were in danger of trading heaven for the fading and inferior hope of the earth. And so Joseph is a witness to them. The uh, ninth witness that he holds up before us and the account is given to us in verse 23 is, is that of Moses' parents. He calls Moses' parents to the stand. And the, the testimony that they bring is concerning a faith that sees the preservation of the coming generation of greater value than the preservation of themselves. The preservation of the coming generation to be of greater value than the preservation of themselves. The story is in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. And because the Pharaoh was concerned about the growing population of Hebrew boys and men that were living in his land and the strength of those Hebrews... He made a commandment that the Hebrew midwives were to take the males when they were born and to throw them into the Nile River, essentially to abort them, to kill them, to weaken the nation of Israel that was growing strong uh, within the borders of Egypt. And the Bible tells us that when Amram and Jochebed, who were the, the parents of Moses, that when they saw their son Moses, it says that they saw that he was a proper child. And it says that they hid him for three months. So they civilly disobeyed the command of the king because they knew it to be the will of God that they should continue, that they should endure. And so the demonstration of their faith is that they literally put everything that they were on the line, including their lives, for the sake of providing the best opportunity they could to pass the baton of the kingdom on to their son. And what they testify before us is of a faith that's willing to do the harder thing for the purposes of God's will. Notice what it says. It says that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw that he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. So they put their lives on the line for the sake of preserving their son. Now, think about what it cost them to do this. What if every time we faced some difficulty within our lives, we took the easy road rather than, you know, God's will or God's road or the right road in a given situation? That was the temptation that they faced. They knew that if they were to disobey the king's command and be caught, found out, then that would, they would pay for it with their lives. But they were willing for the sake of what they knew God's will was to make that risk 
for the sake of their son and for the sake of God's will. What would happen to the kingdom of God in a few years if every time we were faced with the difficulty of a situation before us and we had the option to do the easier thing and to disobey God if we took that road every time? What would happen to the kingdom of God just a few generations away? It would cease to exist, wouldn't it? God calls us to a narrow path and a difficult path. And sometimes that path and to walk on that path means that we need to risk our lives for the sake of doing what God would call us to do. We don't know much of that in this country. I think it's interesting to to, uh, read the, the articles and statistics that call the United States of America a Christian nation. I believe that the foundation and the principles and the, the governing, uh, you know, lights that made our, our, you know, government and our constitutional was, I believe all of that was, was, had God's hand in it and it was founded very purely upon the word of God and the things of God. No contest there. But to say that we still are that in the present condition of things in the nation is just laughable. We live in the biggest me generation that has probably ever lived on the face of planet Earth. We do everything just to please ourselves. It's, it's, our, it's our greatest identifying characteristic and mark is that we are a me generation. And that is the case. And these people were willing to uh, risk it all for the sake of their son. And they give this testimony um, to the Hebrew Christians that, listen, sometimes the will of God for your life is to do the harder thing because it's the better thing. And the Hebrews needed to hear that in the face of the temptation that was in front of them. The tenth witness that he calls to the stand is in verse 24, and that is Moses. And Moses testifies to us concerning a faith that will forsake the world in order to embrace the cross. Notice what it says in verse 24. It says, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, 40 to be exact, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, or the reproach that comes from living for Christ, to be greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The account that the writer calls us to concerning Moses is that of his forsaking of his position in Egypt in order to fulfill the will and call of God upon his life. Now, I hope you know the story because I can't recount the whole thing, but Moses, after he was hidden by his parents, found himself in the palace. He was adopted by the daughter of the Pharaoh and raised with the silver spoon of the king of Egypt in hand. Stephen, in his account in Acts chapter 7, tells us that Moses was trained in all the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians and that he was mighty in word and deed. He was a great man. Some historians even say that Moses was one that would be considered to be next in line to become the Pharaoh. So Moses had it very good. But one day when he was 40 years old, he looked in the mirror and then he looked out a window And he saw the people of God that were there. And he realized, I'm not one of these. 
I'm one of those. And the long and short of it is, is that he turned his back on everything that was in Egypt to take up his identity amongst the people of God. It's a picture of forsaking the world. Do you know, and I'm speaking with sarcasm, that it's the call of the Christian to forsake the world and the treasures of Egypt and the pleasures of sin in order to take up our place at the foot of the cross and to follow the Christ that hung on that cross and that our citizenship is not in this world but our citizenship is in heaven? I know that I need to be reminded of that sometimes because the world has a way of creeping into our lives, doesn't it? And the pleasures of sin can be awfully tempting. And the Bible says here very plainly that sin is pleasurable for a season. But he turned his back on those pleasures because he knew it to be the will of God for his life. I'm reading a book um, by Andrew Murray, who is a, um, he was a, a man greatly used of God in the last century. And he wrote a book called The State of the Church. He wrote it 105 years ago from now. And uh, I'm reading it, and, and I want to just share with you just a, a small passage that I read uh, just today in, in this book. He says this. He says, um, and, he, and what he's doing is he's, he's basically um, highlighting uh, what, what has to happen in our lives if we're going to be the church that God has, has ordained for us to be, if we're to be the Christians that he's ordained for us to be. He says, we shall first of all have to set clearly before ourselves and others what is the true calling of the church and every believer. Christ expects that everyone who is made a partaker of his redemption shall yield himself as the first object of his existence to live for the coming of his kingdom. Christ asks and expects that just as the loyal subjects of a king are ready and eager in time of war to give their lives for the kingdom, so his redeemed ones in the power of his spirit and his love shall live not for themselves but entirely for him who died and lives for them. As long as this standard is counted too high and not accepted as the very groundwork of the relation between Christ and his church and every member of it, our attempt to lift the church into the more abundant life will be in vain. Unless God's children can be brought to accept this standard and to count that kind of life their highest happiness and to believe in the power of Christ to work and maintain it in them, there will be little hope. We will not possess that intense vitality without which the church cannot fulfill her calling. A second step will be the discovery of what the real cause of the evil is, its terrible power over us, and our utter inability to overcome it. It will not be enough to confess that we have been unfaithful to Christ's charge and that we're guilty of leaving men to perish in darkness. We must go deeper than this. We must ask why. With our faith in Christ, there has been so little love to him and for the souls he has entrusted to us. Did we imagine that our religion was pleasing to God while all the time we were grieving our Lord by the neglect of his last and most cherished commands? We shall find that at the root of it all, we selfishly sought and looked to Christ for our personal salvation only. It is worldliness that has kept us from living in the power of his death and resurrection. It is self-satisfaction that has been content with a religion which was, for the greater part, in the power of human wisdom and only in the form of godliness. 
we shall have to be brought to the conviction that we need an entire revolution in our inner life. The God on whom we counted to bring us out of Egypt in conversion and pardon must also bring us by a still more mighty experience of his grace into that life of the new covenant in which God will dwell with us and walk with us. He's saying, listen, church, if we're to be the church that God has called us to be, then we need to recognize, first of all, that the call that God has placed upon our life is the call to forsake ourselves, turn our back on the world, and to come to the cross. And that then we need to recognize and realize that we are completely unable to do that in ourselves, but to give ourselves completely to Him, that He might change us on the inside, and that the love that we have for Him would be a genuine and selfless love, and that it would then be reflected in the way that we look at a lost and dying world. That's what we're called to be. And I know that I easily forget that. My affections are so easily taken away from the things of eternity and fastened onto the things of earth. But Moses testifies before them and he testifies before us that there is nothing that this world can give you in the treasures of Egypt, the wisdom of Egypt, the positions of Egypt that can compare with being numbered among the least of God's people and the destiny and the place that that holds for us eternally. So let us live our lives completely for Him now, forsaking all else. Moses testifies concerning turning our back on the world and then, secondarily, trusting only in the blood. Notice in verse 28. It says, Through faith He kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest He that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. The second instance that's drawn upon concerning Moses' faith was something that happened years later now that he's back in Egypt leading the children of Israel out. And as the plagues are being poured out by God upon the kingdom of Egypt, the tenth and final plague, God spoke to Moses and he said, this is what you're to do. On the first day or the tenth day of the, the first month, You're to take a lamb and it's to dwell in your house until the 14th day. And on the 14th day of this month, that first month, in the evening, each man, each family, each tribe, the nation, will take a lamb. It's singular in Exodus chapter 12. And slay it. And take of the blood of that lamb and sprinkle it upon the two doorposts of your house and upon the lentil. A picture that would make a perfect cross. The two sides... And then the top dripping down onto the threshold, a cross. And when the death angel passes over Egypt, every house that doesn't have the blood applied to the door, the firstborn in that house will die throughout all the kingdom of Egypt. The royalty, the pauper, of the animals, of everything. If I see the blood, I'll pass over. But if I don't see the blood, there will be certain death. Now think about it for one moment. Put yourself in position. Wait, you're telling me that if I take the blood of a lamb and I put it on the doorpost of my house, then some death angel is going to come by in the middle of the night with eight tiny reindeer and a sleigh full of death and, and he's just going to kill the firstborn in my house. It takes faith to believe that's going to happen, doesn't it? Faith that must be demonstrated by an action. 
the action of taking of that blood and applying it to the doorpost of the house. Now what if a, a Hebrew who was entitled to this promise didn't believe and did not then take the lamb and put the blood there? What would happen? There would be death. What if there was an Egyptian who was overhearing this conversation and they said, I'm getting me a lamb. I've seen what this God can do. What would happen if there was blood on their house? The death angel would pass over, wouldn't it? It's a picture of the blood of Christ being the savior of death that is to come. Eternal death, eternal damnation. The Bible says that it is appointed once unto man to die and after this the judgment. And the only thing that will cause a human being to stand or fall before the court seat of God will be whether or not the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to the door of that person's heart. And if God there sees the blood of the perfect Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world, then judgment and death will pass over that person because death has already been experienced by Christ on their behalf. But if a person says, oh no, I'll do it by my good works. I'll do it by my adherence to keep the law of Moses. I'll do it by my righteousness and morality. I'll do it by my church attendance record. I'll do it in the measurement of my own morality against his, that guy over there who's worse than I am. And God says, I don't care what that looks like on the doorpost of your heart. You will die. The blood alone saves. And the call to you and I is not only to come to him forsaking the world, but it's to trust in him completely as the one that can save us from our sins and deliver us from the righteous or from the yeah the righteous wrath of God that is to come. And so Moses testifies concerning turning his back on the world and placing his faith only in the blood, certainly something that the Hebrew Christians needed to hear and that we also need to hear. The 11th witness that he calls in in uh, um, verses 29 and 30, he needs a really big witness stand for this is the entire nation of Israel. He calls to the stand and uh, they testify to us concerning a faith that will follow the leading of the Lord even when it makes no sense at all and see deliverance because of it. Notice in verse uh, 29. He says, By faith they, and the they is the children of Israel, passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, a saying to do, were drowned. By faith, he goes on in verse 30, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. He draws on two instances concerning the children of Israel and their faith. Number one was concerning the Red Sea. When Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, he took them on a path that made absolutely no sense at all. They were called to go north, but they traveled south. They went the wrong direction but they were following the leading of the Lord. There was a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night that God was leading them by. He led them in between two mountain passes which would severely restrict their egress and way of escape should they be pursued by the Egyptians. They were led right up to the shore of the Red Sea so that on three sides they were surrounded and the only direction they had passage was to go backwards. And quickly closing in behind them was the army of Egypt. And the children of Israel were surrounded. But God led them to that position where they were surrounded. And in faith, they followed, even though it was against conventional wisdom, and they saw the deliverance of God when Moses' staff was placed in the water and the seas parted and they passed through on dry ground. They did the impossible, which no one else could do, because they followed the leading of the Lord by faith. 
The second instance is concerning the children of Israel 40 years later in Jericho. The battle plan at Jericho is that they were to walk around the walls of the city once a day for seven days. On the seventh day, they would walk around it seven times and then they would blow a trumpet and God said, watch what happens, the wall's going to fall down. Now that is the most foolish battle plan I've ever heard in my life. We're going to walk and blow horns and the wall's going to fall and the city's going to self-destruct? But they did it because it was the leading and the instruction of God. And by faith, they saw the completion and the fulfillment of what God said would take place. They saw deliverance and leading from God because they followed him by faith. Now, what does that have to do with the Hebrews? Let me ask you a question here tonight. Does salvation by grace through faith make sense? Not really. Wait, you mean it has nothing to do with whether I'm good or bad? It has nothing to do with my bloodline and where I come from. It has nothing to do with anything other than the fact that I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfectly righteous life, that he was God in the flesh, that he died on a cross bearing the sin of the world, and that God raised him from the dead on the third day because he had no sin, and that now by my profession of faith in his name and my asking him to transfer my guilt upon himself and his righteousness upon me, that now I am saved by nothing more than the words of my mouth? That doesn't make sense. But that's the way it's done. And by God speaking it and us believing it, we see his salvation. Not only deliverance from Egypt, which is a picture of the world, but we see deliverance from our enemies, which is the walls of Jericho, and victory and occupation of the promised land. God having procured that for us through faith. Final witness. Witness number 12 in verse 31. He says, by faith, the harlot Rahab. Pause right there. This is the only time in the entire New Testament that the sin of an Old Testament character is mentioned in the New Testament. It's the only time. The sins of the, the Bible characters, they're laid out for us in the Old Testament. When, when David sinned, God put it out. Abraham sinned, God laid it out. It's all there. But you will never read once in the New Testament concerning David's adultery or Abraham's lapse of faith or any of the other. You will never read about it in the New Testament because the New Testament, our sin is cast far as east is from the west except one place. Right here. Only time. The harlot Rahab. Why does the writer of Hebrews bring up the sin of someone who is righteous and someone who was saved? Because what Rahab testifies to you and I tonight and to the Hebrews then is of a faith that even the most undeserving person can be saved by simple belief in the ways of God. That the most unrighteous person, undeserving person, there is no such thing as the most unrighteous person. We're all equally unrighteous before a holy God. 
But the most undeserving person can be saved by grace through faith in God. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. You can go back and we don't have time to, to, to rehash her, her account and her story. But she lived and she became a famous woman in Israel. She married a prince. And she ultimately becomes a, a person in the lineage of the Messiah himself, of Jesus Christ. She married Salmon and they gave birth to Boaz, who was the great-great-grandfather of David. And thus and so it goes on down uh, then through the line. But Rahab testifies to us tonight that even the most undeserving person is saved by faith in the living God. And that's her testimony uh, before us tonight. Um, we're out of time. Again, these are great, great accounts, aren't they? It's awesome to go through the Word of God and to see the things that God has laid out before us uh, in it. And they certainly um, strengthen our faith. We'll finish this chapter next week. And then maybe even get into some of chapter 12 um, as, as, as he concludes uh, his calling to the witness stand in this whole thing. 